Hello and welcome to a T-Rex talk, talking about digital night vision and the uh, Psionics Opsin device. This podcast is a little bit late uh, because uh, normally we post podcasts on Saturday, but on Saturday we posted the uh, video review of the Psionics Opsin device. And I really like to record podcasts shortly after the, the video reviews or any of the videos that we post because invariably uh, I will have forgotten to say things, there will be comments that point things out, or uh, I will have made mistakes. So I enjoy <laughs> covering some of the stuff that we just covered to try to make up for some of those things. So I will go through some of the comments, uh, some of the things that I meant to talk about and forgot to, or some of the things that I was gonna talk about, but it already became a pretty significantly long video. It is uh, 43 minutes long, which is a very long time to talk about digital night vision, in my opinion. And if you haven't watched the video, you can go and watch it now, or you can conclude that 43 minutes is a very long time to talk about digital night vision, and uh, you, you can save yourself some time. Although, if you're not gonna watch the video, uh, I'm not entirely sure why you are listening to this podcast. But uh, let's, let's get into it. One of the things that I always sort of regret after I record a video about night vision is that I forget to point out that there's actually way more devices out there than the common ones, sort of at both ends of the spectrum, so to speak. There are a number of devices that are way more sophisticated in airplanes and helicopters and various other vehicles. And I'm sure that there are devices that are way more sophisticated than the iVast device uh, that are still classified. The iVast device is built on the Microsoft HoloLens. Uh, it's pretty well known and well documented at this point. There's definitely secret things about it. The iVast uh, Integrated Visual Augmentation System uh, 1.0 uh, which is built on top of the Microsoft HoloLens 2.0, has had a number of teething issues. It is pretty big, it is pretty heavy, it has some fairly significant uh, power consumption issues and thermal issues, uh, and when soldiers have been using it, they've actually been scoring more poorly than they did with their earlier generation night vision devices. And so the Army has asked Microsoft to revisit that, and so iVast 1.1 and 1.2 are gonna be somewhat different devices, still using the same uh, headset, I imagine. But I'm sure that there are, like I said, other devices that are more secret, that are not nearly as well known, that have pretty significant heads-up display capabilities, that provide a lot more information, that have much better sensors than the ones that, that we are generally aware of. And then, there's also a whole bunch of do-it-yourself devices, which are pretty interesting. First-person drone goggles, a whole bunch of different devices with different types of cameras on them. Generally, the run cam uh, cameras, which are also used by drones, there's something called the Night Eagle camera, and uh, they had an owl camera, which I have one of those. They make cameras which are for flying drones at night, and they're very sensitive to visible light and infrared light, and so a number of folks have bolted those directly to uh, either FPV drone goggles or uh, other types of things and made their own DIY uh, digital night vision devices, which are pretty good in, in many respects and extremely low cost. You can cobble those things together for hundreds of dollars instead of thousands of dollars. But based on my experience with the Runcam cameras, the sensitivity is not on par with the Psionics Opsin. 
still has a lot more sensitivity, and the ability to run that camera at a number of different frame rates is still pretty cool, pretty, pretty useful capability. So there's a bunch of people in the comments pointing out both these super high-end devices, uh, speculating about super top-secret magical devices that we don't know anything about, and talking about these do-it-yourself uh, devices. So I want to apologize for not talking about those uh, and uh, not mentioning them, just kind of really talking about the PVS-14s and the Opsin and, and uh, you know, kind of almost nothing else. But one of the things that is a little bit difficult about uh, night vision in general is that a lot of people don't really understand uh, the capabilities of different tubes and the ways that they operate and the different levels of sensitivity and different levels of clarity and other things that go into individual tubes. And the fact that you can put different tubes in the exact same housing. So there's a lot of people in uh, internet discussions all over different forums and YouTube and Instagram and so forth that will talk about how this device compares to a PVS-14. And PVS-14 doesn't really describe a particular tube. Uh, almost anything can go into a PVS-14 housing. Almost anything can go into a PVS-7 housing. Uh, PVS-7 devices originally were fielded with, you know, older, less capable tubes. But there's nothing stopping you from putting a really high FOM, high quality, high sensitivity Gen 3 unfilmed L3 tube into an old PVS-7 housing and having the capability of that superior tube in there. So, and then even when people talk about Gen 2 and Gen 3, there's a lot of different types of tubes that are technically Gen 3 tubes, but have very different capabilities. And so once you get into the research on these different tubes, you will see people talking about uh, figures of merit, and the resolution and the signal-to-noise ratio of different tubes, and they're all very different. And then even tubes that are very high-quality tubes with very high resolution and very high signal-to-noise ratio that are nice and bright will occasionally uh, get damaged and have blemishes that make them less clear. So when people talk about their personal experiences with devices, comparing them to a digital night vision, uh, sometimes it's very hard to know what exactly people are talking about. So there's a bunch of comments in uh, this YouTube video, like many YouTube videos, saying like, yeah, this is not very good because my friend has this, or I've looked through that. And not only is this already a very subjective thing, people's eyeballs looking through different devices, but it's also not clear what devices they have. So uh, I have to be very specific. If a random unnamed person on the internet says that they have a Gen 3 tube that is better than such and such, or a Gen 2 tube that's better than such and such, that isn't super clear. Now, speaking of clarity, there's another thing that I didn't really go into in this particular video, because it was already getting really long, and that is the difference between spatial resolution and temporal resolution. The differences between digital night vision and analog night vision are huge. They're almost kind of mind-bogglingly different. Uh, someone did comment uh, that it's almost like the difference between carburetors and electric fuel injectors, which I think is a, actually a very good analogy. He points out that carburetors had decades of refinement and the early fuel injectors were pretty terrible. But within 10 or 15 years, electronic fuel injection was superior in almost every way. Um, so yes, Bodie McBoatface has an excellent point. That is really a good analogy. And for all the people complaining about the cost of digital night vision for not very much performance, uh, the same thing happened when broadcast cameras used cathode tubes 
photocathode tubes like the same ones that are inside of analog night vision. And chips came along. This was back in the 90s. For a long time, those chips were not cheaper and they were not uh, better quality. There were reasons to use the chip cameras over the tube cameras, but it wasn't always image quality or sensitivity or color. There were occasionally other reasons to use them. But then over time, as the digital chips, uh, which were CCD chips at that time, as they got better, then there became reasons to use them over the tubes, specifically quality. The image quality from the chips was better than the image quality from the tubes, but they still weren't cheaper until after they'd been better for some time. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we have something similar happening here. Now, obviously there are digital night vision devices, I would say that in quotes, that are really, really cheap. And that's because the quality is really, really low. So my recommendation would be to discontinue to wait, uh, not very long, and then we'll start to see the quality of the night vision chips in the digital night vision devices matching or superseding the quality and sensitivity of the analog tubes and the price coming down at the same time. But it's important to remember that it is still a very different type of technology, a very different piece uh, of technology that is doing the work of amplifying the visible light and the infrared light that is out there. And so it just kind of, it works very differently. So for example, Let's talk about resolution. The way that you measure resolution on a digital night vision device is pixels, just like any other camera. And the way that you measure uh, resolution on an analog intensifier tube is uh, line pairs. It's kind of complicated to explain why they do it this way, but it's line pairs per millimeter and the resolution is how much you can actually resolve. And this is the spatial resolution, but, it's kind of unfair to just turn line pairs on an analog tube into pixels on a digital tube and assume that you're comparing apples to apples because the camera is taking frames. The Opsin device has the capability to do 30 frames per second, 60 frames per second, or 90 frames per second, which I think is pretty fast. Uh, Lucas, on the other hand, thought that that was pretty slow. He's still looking forwards to 120 frames per second. But nevertheless, even at 120 frames per second, you are still looking at 120 still images per second. 120 distinct slices of time per second, which is not how the analog intensifier tubes work at all. They are constantly feeding photons into your eyeball like looking through a telescope. And so because there is an infinite amount of temporal resolution as opposed to the 120 or 90 or 60 or 30 frames per second, you have a tremendous amount of information even though you're looking at it through a lower spatial resolution screen. And uh, this is not a great analogy, but my analogy for this is essentially a screen door. When you look through a screen door, uh, it does not have great resolution. The pixels on a screen door, for lack of a better word, are pretty big. And yet, as you move your head, you can look through all those little uh, pixels in that screen door, and you can really make up everything that is beyond at a very high level of resolution. You, just the slight movements of your head allow you to see everything that is on the other side of the screen door. 
It's not a great analogy, but the same thing is true uh, of the night vision tube. Even though the little tiny phosphors that are feeding you information, they're kind of like pixels, but not exactly, they're feeding you information in an unending stream. And so as you move your head, as you look around, you really perceive and are able to resolve way more detail uh, than you could when you have limited temporal resolution and better spatial resolution. You really need lots and lots more resolution uh, on a digital device to really feel like you can see things as clearly. And that's one of the things that you cannot tell from the YouTube video or any YouTube video. You really have to look through it with your own eyeball to see the difference between the analog tube, which is a magic telescope, and digital night vision, which is a screen, a viewfinder, just like any other camera. But it's just yet another example of how that wildly different technology uh, means that you have to have different expectations or go about solving the problems in very different ways. That obviously brings us to uh, latency. A digital device needs to have really, really low latency so that what you are seeing with your eye is really close to what is actually happening in front of the camera. Not much time has elapsed from the photons entering the camera to coming out of the viewfinder into your eye. And that latency, again, uh, we mentioned this in the video, is separate from the frame rate. It could take a very long time for the device to actually process the images and feed them to your eye, even if it was running at a really high frame rate. Bringing that latency down is extremely important. And there is obviously a really, really low latency on the Psyonix Opsin to the point that I couldn't actually measure it. Or rather, I should say, I couldn't measure it using the same uh, trick that I used for the Psyonix Aurora three to five years ago. And a bunch of people uh, gave me suggestions in the comments, some of which are good suggestions, some of which are the exact same thing that I did uh, with the Aurora. And I just don't have a camera with a high enough frame rate to figure out that latency. So it's just, it's just super low. Here's a comment suggesting that there should be a quick adjustment knob for the frame rate selector as opposed to switching it within the menu. Uh, it's actually not that hard to switch it within the menu. There's three buttons on the device. And uh, if you long press some of those buttons, you're able to really quickly change the frame rates and you're really able to quickly change the exposure. So that's actually pretty easy, pretty well thought out. Somebody pointing out that the reason the different frame rates are probably not recorded in the video files is to save on battery and processing power. And I think that he's entirely right. There is a good reason for that, I'm sure. Another good reason is it probably uses some of the exact same code uh, and the same MP4 encoder that might be in the Psyonix Aurora, uh, or maybe not, but it's using an off-the-shelf MP4 encoder, just the settings for 30 frames a second, regardless of how many frames per second the uh, sensor and viewfinder are running at. Here's a comment that says that uh, Lucas's bit in the video had so much practical info I had to watch it twice. Uh, yeah, he pointed out some very interesting things that I haven't heard anybody talk about before, like the fact that when you have color night vision, it is much easier to passively aim through your optic because it's much easier to pick uh, the reticle of your EOTech or whatever other red dot you're using out from the background. But at the same time, he said it was actually much more difficult to use a civilian legal laser with color night vision. It did not stand out as much or did not appear as bright as through regular night vision. I think there's a couple of issues there related to uh, sensitivity as well as to color. Yeah, I've not heard anyone talk about that before. That was a really good observation. Uh, although I think that 
passive aiming is much more important and going to be much more important in the future. That's, I guess that seems kind of obvious to say when we're talking about digital night vision being more prevalent and in the hands of more people in the future. Speaking of color, somebody in the comment section pointed out that that's also very useful for medics, uh, evaluating patients, the ability to actually see color pretty helpful in that instance, which is an excellent observation. I hadn't thought about that before, uh, but I would point out that the color that you see through the night vision device, when it can see infrared light, uh, it does give everything this weird pinkish purplish look. That's how the infrared light looks. So it isn't a super accurate way to judge uh, people's complexion. They are gonna look a little more pinkish, a little more purplish than normal, but uh, you figure that out pretty quick. You can account for that. Here's, here's one, somebody says, there should be hybridization of a digital sensor with a phosphorus tube on the lens, something that could cut down on battery consumption. So there are hybrid devices that are out there and there's a bunch of reasons to build a hybrid device. A lot of them are for remote sensors. And the thing is you, you do indeed get combined strengths when you do that, but at the same time you also get combined weaknesses so that when you add the analog tube on the front of the camera, you don't actually get overall less power consumption because you still have to power the camera and you're also powering the tube. So you end up not saving a lot of power, but there are still some reasons to do this. The tube is just as fragile and you lose that uh, infinite temporal resolution once you start taking pictures through the camera. But one of the things that you can do is you can eliminate a few of the pieces of that image intensifier tube. Uh, most, uh, I, I, it's almost all, but it isn't actually all. So I'll say most image intensifier tubes have a device inside to flick the image upside down or rather right side up when it gets to your eye because the, the actual tube itself uh, focuses that image upside down onto the back of the cathode ray and then the, there needs to be a device that flips that image right side up to your eye. You could skip that if you had a camera on the back because you just have the camera be upside down and problem solved. The other thing that you can do is you can actually build a tube that is much smaller. Optically speaking, an image intensifier tube that you're gonna put in front of your eyeball needs to have a diameter that is really similar to your eyeball so that when your eyeball looks through the eyepiece on the back, you see a nice image that is a nice size for your retina to uh, pick up on. But if you want to save some money, you can make smaller tubes, little tiny tubes that go onto little tiny cameras. So there's definitely reasons for hybridization, but power consumption isn't, uh, isn't actually one of them. People speculating on uh, different upgrades through firmware and software for the device. One of the things that I forgot to mention is that uh, the processor inside the device is a field programmable gate array. So not just a regular CPU off the shelf. It is something that is almost infinitely reprogrammable in the field, which means that uh, there could be a lot of things that are changed uh, and added in firmware updates. So uh, looking forward to that. A couple of people asking about bridging an Opsin device with an actual PVS-14. And that's actually kind of a nifty idea. If your brain uh, is comfortable looking at two different images and doing the fusion 
inside of your own actual brain, then uh, that is kind of a neat idea because that is a better way of combining some of those strengths and weaknesses. You would have the color and you would have the widescreen of the Opsin and then you'd have the superior sensitivity and dynamic range of the analog tube in the other eye. Like that is actually uh, not a dumb idea. That is actually worth trying. But not everybody can make good use of two separate different disparate images uh, in two different eyes. That's actually a brain question. Very subjective to different people. And then there's a number of people talking about bridging two Opsin devices to make binos. Uh, it is certainly possible, but I would point out that uh, it would be much easier for psionics to make bino opsins because uh, there's a lot of components that are really not necessary to double up. Dedicated binocular device would only need one micro SD card slot. It would only need one recorder. It would only need one GPS receiver. It only need one compass. There's a bunch of things that it only need one of. And if that FPGA is powerful enough, it might only need one processor to feed both viewfinders with both cameras. So potentially there'd be some weight uh, and power savings along with significant cost savings there. So I would say, yes, you could definitely put two of those together, but it would sure be a lot easier <laughs> for psionics to do it. And then of course, because this is YouTube, there's, uh, there's actually lots of dumb comments. Uh, people pointing a bunch of things out that are not actually true, talking about how dumb night vision is and I can't use it without an illuminator. Again, it depends. You can't use it without an illuminator in a building with no windows at night, but uh, you know, here's someone pointing out that, uh, or actually recognizing that we are using really, really good high-end Gen 3 tubes and he would like us to compare it to something that is a little more middle of the road. I think that is actually an excellent uh, point because all the people who pointed out that this is a very expensive device compared to a very cheap PVS-14 did not take into account that the very cheap PVS-14s have very cheap tubes in them that do not perform nearly as well as the very expensive tubes. So if you actually compared a $2,500 uh, Gen 3 tube in a PVS-14 body, Sensitivity might not actually be that different than the $2,500 Psionics Aurora. I wish I had uh, stated that a little more clearly. I'm not sure that everyone really uh, figured that out. Uh, people talking about the, the compass and the GPS. Even though the compass in the device is not infinitely accurate, it would allow you to read a compass without a backlight. That's an excellent point. You, uh, you have to manually focus the device just like any other uh, current night vision device. But uh, once you focus the device up close, it is pretty good at map reading, uh, watch reading, and compass reading with ambient light. And then a bunch of international people, people who live in countries where they are not allowed to own night vision or import night vision, or it's just very difficult to get anything beyond uh, Gen 2 tubes, are very interested in this device because even though it, uh, it isn't as competitive with the sort of things that we Americans are able to get, it is a phenomenally <laughs> tempting device uh, for people who have much more limited competition. Now there are still gonna be countries who restrict it. Uh, more tyrannical nations will actually lock this down even though there is no ITAR restriction, uh, but you're just gonna get that. Um, state is gonna state, you know. 
But all in all, I hope that uh, I came across as appropriately excited about the future of digital night vision and uh, appropriately cautious about some of the limitations of the Opsin. I hope you guys enjoyed the video and I hope that addressing a few of these things and talking about some of the comments uh, was helpful and interesting. And there's a bunch of ideas uh, in the comments that are kind of dumb now, but they're not so dumb in the future. So one of them was, you should apply artificial intelligence to denoise the image and extract more data. And right now, that is kind of a dumb idea because that will take a lot of processing power and a lot of time, introducing even more latency. And uh, with a lot of the current denoising algorithms that exist and super resolution algorithms that are all AI powered and machine learning trained and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they have an annoying tendency to hallucinate. They try to guess what is in the shadows based on analysis of similar images. And so if you train your night vision artificial intelligence on images that include lots of pictures of say, for example, the Taliban, it's gonna guess that in shadows that it can't really make things out. It's gonna guess that what is inside of those shadows is the same thing that's inside of its training model, which is Taliban. So it's gonna hallucinate stuff that doesn't really exist into those shadows. But that being said, there's a lot of different ways to do uh, artificial intelligence. But the machine learning and the training models, all these things are developing at a very rapid pace. So in the not too distant future, we could have some machine learning denoising algorithms that are actually very useful and not predictive or generative, so they're not hallucinating things. And there are some very interesting bits of uh, research and some very interesting projects where you take an AI model and you build out an extremely sophisticated algorithm and then you actually bake it into a solid state device that uses very, very little power. And once this becomes a robust and mature technology, that's exactly the sort of thing that you want to bake onto a chip that you put into your digital night vision device. Uh, that's exactly the sort of thing that you're gonna want to bake into your radio and various other uh, combat equipment so that it uses way less power and it's way less hackable. Very interesting applications with a bunch of these things. So we're going to see a lot of developments on a whole bunch of different signal processing fronts, display fronts, sensor fronts, and all these things are gonna to come together and increase people's capabilities tremendously over the next few years. So I'm gonna be keeping a close eye on that. There's gonna be, I believe, a number of competitors to Psionics very soon. I would still argue that a lot of those devices that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, some of those cheaper night vision devices that you can buy on Amazon, some of the do-it-yourself ones, even some of the really crummy Gen 2 tubes out there, they're not really competitive with the Opsin device. The sensitivity is actually really, really good. It's, it's way better than a lot of folks think it is, but they are going to have competitors. If this device is as popular as I think that it is going to be, the competitors are gonna notice that and they're gonna to wanna to get in on the action. And as technology inexorably improves different cameras so that they are more sensitive, it's gonna get a lot easier to make devices like this and a bunch of people will jump in at that time as well. So keep your eyes open, we'll keep talking about it and we'll probably talk about it in a future episode. One more comment that I will mention from the YouTube video. A bunch of people apparently miss the T-Rex talk. There's 542 likes 
uh, on one comment about missing the T-Rex talks. Um, some of those folks do not know that there is a podcast, uh, but a lot of those folks actually just miss the video component and the interactive component probably, and the more conversational uh, aspect of the interview. So I did notice that comment. I am paying attention to it, and we're talking about it. So keep an eye out for potentially some podcast uh, updates and changes as well.